0: Hello everybody and welcome to Cutting In From The Left, episode number two. My name is Tom Wise and I've got my good friend Luis Antonio Streeter with me again today. Uh, How are you doing Luis? Hey Hey,
1: Tom, uh, doing well, looking forward to it.
0: Right, so this is episode number two. We've now had more podcast episodes than one time Norwich City record signing Van Vilswinkle has Premier League goals. We've also got some more podcast episodes than Steve Wigley had wins as Southampton manager and more podcast episodes than Sammy Lee had wins as Bolton manager. I'm delighted. Proud. So this week we want to focus on the derbies that happened at the weekend. These were the Manchester derby, the Madrid derby and the Clásica in Germany. So we'll start with the Manchester derby. So this finished 2-0 to Man United. The story was that City came into it uh, on a 21-game winning run. United comprehensively beat their rivals. Would you say that, Luis?
1: Yeah, I think it was a top performance from them. To be honest, um, again, don't want to give Man United too much credit ever, but, um, but to be honest, Solskjaer he, he does play it out in these, in these big games where he knows it's on the line. He really gets the players motivated, he, and you can tell out there that they were they were ready for the fight. And City look a little bit. Also, perhaps lethargic, a little bit tired, um, which is something that they've actually dealt with quite well this season. That a lot, a lot of teams have looked have looked tired because of the, the large number of games, the, the compressed schedule. City have generally looked quite sharp, but perhaps it caught up them a little bit this game, uh, along with some of the mental pressure, perhaps combined of that that derby atmosphere, even without the fans, perhaps that contributed to that a little bit. And obviously, in terms of their great form, I mean, these things can't last forever, so. Perhaps just just inevitable that it was going to end That at some point uh, and Manchester United played well enough to deliver that killer blow. Obviously, there was the, uh, the inevitable Bruno Fernandes penalty as well. But yeah, you can't really detract track from a, from a great performance from, from Man United, to be honest.
0: It was the perfect game for United in many ways because they've been so bad this season against teams that want them to have the ball, want them to have possession. Mm. And um, obviously, coming up against City, what they, what they do is just keep the ball and United love the counter-attack. City, you know, they have suffered from counterattacks in the past. Like they've always struggled against Leicester, um, and you know, G- Jamie Vardy always has a field day when he plays them. Um, and even it made me think of the game last season when that we went to the Norwich, the Norwich Man City game, and, yeah. and, and you know, it was, it was one of the few good moments of a terrible season. Like you know, and Norwich played so well on the count on the counter, they scored one of the best goals I've seen live, probably. So, yeah, they don't really do very well with the counter. And you'd probably say United, if they're a bit more clinical, if they played the right passes, they probably could have scored a couple more.
1: Yeah, I would say a kind of high-energy counter-attacking system is what seems to work against Man City. But I feel like a lot of teams haven't done it this year, perhaps because of that tiredness factor again, that they're not able to kind of press press in the right parts of the pitch, get the ball forward really quickly. And Pep has shifted things around a little bit and made them I would say, tougher to to attack against as well. I think uh, Ruben Diaz has helped with that. And, and John Stone's emerging really uh, this season as well as a, as a top defender for them again. And um, that's really helped them out in terms of combating those kinds of teams. But yeah, as, as you say, they can be vulnerable. They've shown that vulnerability in the past against counter-attacking teams. And I think, yeah, we saw it again here. And I think some teams might be taking notes perhaps in the Champions League and seeing... OK, yeah, this is a proven way to beat Manchester City. This is how we employ it. It's perhaps a little bit academic from the Premier League this season. Because to be honest, it looks like we'll still uh, take it fairly comfortably. But for the Champions League, it might be an interesting thing to, to look out for.
0: We sort of see City in the figures that they're putting up. Obviously, 21 wins in a row. And they do seem unbeatable. But there is definitely sort of like tinks in the armour. Talking to a couple of United players that stood out. Luke Shaw, you know, he's, had, he's having an amazing season. I really, I think he's going to probably be England's left back. I, I, I think a Chilwell sort of in and out isn't he of the Chelsea team? So he he yeah. played really well, and someone else um, that played really well who's been getting a, a lot of criticism, Anthony Marshall. I think he deserved a goal. Really, didn't get one, but he played really well. He led the line really well. Won the penalty, obviously, a minute in. To say that personally, I'd be one of his biggest critics. But you have got to give it to him. Like I think he played really well at the weekend.
1: I think in the last episode, we talked about him a little bit and kind of gave him some criticism. And I think, yeah, to be honest, he performed a lot better. Uh, He seemed a lot sharper. He seemed like he perhaps motivated more for this game, um, which again, perhaps speaks to Solskjaer's work in terms of getting players up for these kind of big games. I guess the question for him is whether he can maintain that form consistently, which to be honest, I'm doubtful of, but I guess I'll give him a chance for the rest of the season to see how he does. Um, I, to be honest I don't think they can keep waiting too much longer with him to show his talent but if he can keep up that kind of performance week in week out for the rest of the season then I'm sure he'll be a valued member of, the, of their team
0: there's many criticisms of him that you can give him and people have given him but I think something he always gets tagged with is like looking miserable while he plays and I feel like this is a thing that that black players get much more than any other, you know, ethnicity player. Like I I see people talking about Edouard playing for Celtic as well. Like a lot Mm -hmm. of people who think that he looks miserable and, you know, he's, um, I don't know, just, just, you know, he should be grinning from ear to ear. You know, he's he's a professional footballer. He should be loving this. And uh, it's not, uh, he played really well at the weekend, Martial. And he still didn't, you know, he still wasn't exactly uh, very expressive on his face, but he doesn't need to, does he? You know, it's not, it's not part of it. As long as you do your job. I, I don't see why people sort of slate them for not smiling.
1: Oh, definitely. First of all, I think Marshall just has a face where he looks like he's just a bit unhappy all the time. And I think you can't really help that. And I think, as you say, I think there's potentially a racial factor there. I think it applies a lot to, to attacking players. I mean, you can't expect an attacking player in particular who's maybe sometimes not really in, that, in the game that much, not getting much service, um, not getting chances perhaps. He seems having to defend a lot, and um, you can't expect them to look happy, contented. the Whole match. I mean, we all know strikers like Suarez, Costa, visibly look very frustrated a lot of the time, and it's just kind of part of their persona and something you deal with. You can't really say someone like Ibrahimovic as well, for example, who's often like that on the pitch. I know actually talking about Liverpool. I mean, Mane and Salah, a particular Salah used to get, still gets some quite a lot of stick in that regard. Whenever he looks sort of a little bit unhappy. People always point to his body language. Oh, he's, he's definitely on his way to Real Madrid. So he doesn't want to be there anymore. And sort of the next game he scores two goals and he's smiling. Everyone seems to forget about that. So I think it's just one of those knee-jerk things that people are like, oh, because you're slumped a little bit on the pitch, you're not putting in 110%. And that does speak a little bit to the British mentality of, oh, you've got, you got to run about like headless chicken all the time to prove that you're working hard for the team instead of... I mean, these are professional footballers who do things... Like elite, that like athletes do in bursts, so they've got to work perhaps tirelessly for ten minutes, and then naturally they're going to need a little bit of a rest, especially in a season such as this. So it's a bit of a manufactured kind of controversy there.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think that's such a that is such an English football fan thing. You know, you, it's all about effort. It's all about heart on the sleeve. Any any sort of quality or skill is normally sort of sidelined, isn't it? For a lad that can run about, we'll see. We'll see in the summer with the Euro squad, but. Players like Jack Grealish, who inject that bit of quality, are normally overlooked, aren't they? For someone that can just run their lungs out. So we we can move on next to the uh, Madrid derby. This was Atleti, who have obviously been having an amazing season in Spain. They were hosting uh, Real, who I think third. Um I this was a, a funny one actually because I was looking forward to seeing Jao Felix because I've not really seen much of him. Um and it was a bit strange to me, someone that hasn't watched too much the Liga this year, but he was actually dropped for this game. I don't know where they're resting him for a, a Champions League game that's coming up, but they didn't they didn't play him, they went with um Lorente, the former Real Madrid player in a bit of a higher foot position on the pitch. And yeah, it really worked. Like he provided the assist for the first for the Suarez opener. Um, and uh, they were really unlucky not to actually hold on to the three points with Benzema scoring for round right near the end. Watching this game through a sort of England magnifying glass again, it was really good to see Kieran Trippier playing. Um, I think he's back now from his ban, uh, over his ridiculous gambling ban that he got. And, yeah, he played really, really well. But there was a stat, actually. Apparently, he's played every single minute that he's actually been available this season. So... He's, he's come back from a ban and then I think he some, something happened where he got banned again, but then obviously this week he's back in and played the full 90 minutes, so he's really valued there. But yeah, so with that draw, at and three points ahead of Barca and they've got five points ahead of Real. Barca are probably the closest challenger, they've not lost in 16, they've won 10 of the last 11 games. Yeah, it was it was exciting to see, and and Suarez like I, Suarez obviously scored. I just can't get over the fact that Barcelona allowed him to go to Atleti. Like I find that mad.
1: Yeah, having watched him this season, I think you can tell he's he's lost uh, a yard or two of pace. He's not the player he was um, in terms of being able to kind of run the channels and press and Harry all the time. But he doesn't really need to be. They give him the service, and he scores inevitably. And his scoring record is, is really good this season. It's, it's almost up there with those, those great seasons he had with, with Liverpool and, and earlier on him at Barcelona. So yeah, maybe you could say he's not doing exactly what Barcelona would want him to do. How of a striker? And perhaps it makes sense on, on both sides to let him go to Atletico. But I mean, looking at that, and with Atletico ahead of Barcelona in the league, Barcelona struggling to score goals, it's hard not to view it as a as a as a poor decision.
0: Yeah, I think Barca last summer and probably next summer, this summer coming, they're trying to get rid of a lot of this like dead weight, if you want to call it that. These sort of players that have brought them so much glory in the past and they think they just want to move on now. They've obviously got Koeman. Just sort of looking at it as someone who doesn't regularly um, watch the Spanish league. Yeah, Suarez is just amazing. The way he took his goal even, like outside of the foot, no doubt. Trippier being back. It sort of freed up Lorente to play that role further forward. Like he's obviously more of a defensive player where he has been. And so, yeah, it's almost like you get two players back just from him returning. And it also opens the possibility of Trippier playing for England because I feel he sort of gets ignored when it comes to the Euros. Like I, I, you forget he's even playing over, overseas. But yeah, he, he should be in a shout probably if he continues until the end of the season.
1: Well, he was the favoured option for England for a long time. Um, particularly at, at the last World Cup, um, people were sort of questioning whether they should start him ahead of Trent, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold. And yeah, I think Trippier is kind of valued a lot because in those kind of big games, he's got set-piece ability as well. And he's got crossing ability. And so he, he's always in the mix. I think he scored. I'm not wrong. He scored at least one free kick for England.
0: Yeah, he scored uh, the free kick. If you remember, we were we obviously watched it together, the semi-final against Croatia. He scored the game. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He?
1: Yeah. He's definitely got that ability to kind of to shake a game up. And yeah, I think that is that one area where England are quite strong at the moment. Those fullbacks uh, we've talked about Shaw and Tripp here now. You've got Alexander Arnold, you've got Chilwell. you've got even sort of the likes of Carl Walker Peters coming through as well. Um, so you've got plenty of options there. Um, I guess centre back could potentially present a little bit more of an issue, but if you got John Stones playing well, if you're playing a free other back potentially with him, Maguire and Walker, then all of a sudden that defence is looking quite solid.
0: Yeah, I think I think it'll have to be Stones um, and probably Maguire at centre half. But yeah, I, going back to the Manchester derby, actually, that was one of the not too many games where I thought yeah, Maguire did look like a really class player here. like the city didn't really bother him at all and that's credit to him and hopefully it'll be to england's benefit in the summer we'll finish this segment by talking about the big game in germany uh, dortmund versus bayern so this is now. Uh, this finished four two to Bayern Munich, and that is apparently the seventh straight defeat that Dortmund have had away to Bayern Munich. So not not looking very good on paper. But uh, yeah, what did what did you make of it?
1: Yeah, I think in regards to that, the were commentators were saying that um that was a record for the history of the uh, of the fixture. Um, so it shows a little bit the stranglehold that the Bayern have over Dortmund at the moment. Um, to be honest. Dortmund were missing a few players. Um, I know Guerrero was out for them. Um, they had a few problems with fitness in general, uh, but they they did play very well, at least certainly in the first half. Um, I thought, yeah, I was impressed with a quick start. Obviously, Haaland is a phenomenon. His scoring record uh, is insane at the moment. I think they were saying as well that if he continued his current scoring rate ever since he joined Dortmund in the Bundesliga, if he got to the the current age that Lewandowski is now and continued his career in the Bundesliga, he could be far ahead of him in terms of goals scored. Which, I mean, considering Lewandowski's already superb scoring record is is quite remarkable. My suspicion was, when Dortmund went 2-0 up, that that Bayern would start to turn the screw and get goals back. And really helping them in that was was getting those two goals back before halftime which really seemed to take the, the wind out of Dortmund's sails. And yeah, you just, you just can't stop Lewandowski at the moment as well. So once Bayern were able to get hold of the ball a little bit, uh, work the Dortmund defenders, put it into those right positions for him, it was always going to be very tough for them to keep clean sheets, which is not something that they naturally do much anyway. Um, and I think it'll be something that they'll have to address in the summer, which I think they've confirmed that I believe that Marco Rosa, uh, the club manager, will be joining Dortmund. Um, so I think that'll be number one thing on his agenda.
0: Yeah, it was an interesting game because, like you say, Dortmund went to England really early on. And if you remember, there was a chance uh, when Thomas Mounier uh, went through, and he just had to put Haaland in to get his hat trick. But the pass was like rubbish; he didn't make it. And it was one of those sort of turning moments. Like I was, I was watching it with my dad, and he was just like, oh, "That's the moment, you know. It's, it's two nil mm, being." Yeah. Being the most dangerous scoreline, all those kind of things, you just have to make it free, and especially against Bayern Munich, like like you said, like you just had this feeling they were going to come back, and and you know they got to level at half time, but only really won it, didn't they, in the last few seconds of the game, which made it probably even worse, thinking they were going to get a point, um, and yeah, I, uh, it was Emre Chan weren't it? I think who lost the ball to Sane that led to yeah. the buying goal. <laughs> um, it's a bit disappointing, isn't it, to see a, a guy of sort of Emre Can's stature losing out to Sane, but what can what can you do?
1: Yeah, I feel like it showed why Dortmund are not in the title race, and in fact, fighting more for top four. Because I mean, you can say they've had they've been unlucky of injuries, which is true, um, but at the same time, they've got like sort of the key attacking players in general available there, like Sobrero and Haaland. And to be honest, in terms of their defense and midfield don't really have too many injuries at the moment at all. So it's, it's more a matter of perhaps just the quality isn't there. Um, in terms of even keeper, in terms of hits uh, and, and Berkey, gets kind of goalkeeping options as well. It's been something that's let them down in the past. And I think it's something where you look at a team like Bayern, a you know, obviously Manuel Norris in goal. It's just that step above, that world-class step. The Dortmunds seem to have too many areas where they're not quite at that level. Uh, and it shows where they do have that quality, the likes of Haaland uh, and Sancho and Royce. They don't have the quality elsewhere on the pitch. To me, it's just, a, I mean, it's obviously, it's a very simple and, and basic point, but they do need to have those kinds of resources if they want to compete against Bayern because they have, you know, a remarkable squad, which has quality all over the pitch, so much strength and depth. I mean, they were prepping uh, Serge Nabry to come in, in the second half and just thought, you know, what a player to bring on that kind of situation when you've already got the likes of Komen and Sané uh, on there so yeah it just makes all the difference to have that kind of squad depth and I think Bayern and Man City in particular are two teams who have shown the importance of that in the modern game to be able to compete at that really the highest level.
0: Yeah I, I think with Dortmund as well it's always it's not never really the talk of them gaining any big players it's always about them losing their star assets like this summer, I'm sure it will all be about Sancho leaving again. It'll all be about Haaland leaving again. Um, it, not to call them a, a selling club, but it feels like that, you know, they are probably the best selling club in Europe, really, because they finish so high every year and still manage to lose their best players. It must be a bit gutting that, you know, they can't really put a, ch- a title challenge together.
1: Yeah, I think when you start to get that kind of reputation, it's almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It gets into the mind of your fans, uh, your players and even your staff, your manager and even, I guess even the upper echelons, the board. That is just inevitable that you're going to keep selling the player and you just start changing your mindset to adapt to that without so having to dormant on so many occasions and especially selling players to their main rival and the team they're supposed to compete against. I mean, that, that's not really a sustainable way for them to, to go on and, and compete for major honors, even if it is perhaps financially necessary or something that you can't prevent. It's just not really a platform for them to to build to greater success and actually build a, a lasting squad and team that can go on for say four or five years and develop together and become a, a world class team.
0: The only sort of thing they might be able to take this summer is that it doesn't look like Haaland will go to Bayern, which I think a lot of people think is on the cards because, like you say, they've tended to lose their star people to Bayern over the years. But I think uh, with Lewandowski still going as he is, I don't think he's quite old enough to be put out to pasture to bring Haaland in. So that would be that would be a, a, something good. But if they can hold off the likes of Chelsea, Real Madrid, Man City, I think that would be a bigger worry for them.
1: Yeah, I suspect the Haaland will stay for at least one more season. I think he'll want to prove himself and, and kind of really cement himself as, I guess, almost starting to become an icon at the club. Um, obviously, very early days, to say that, but with his scoring rate, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, if he stays one more season, he can really propel them at least perhaps to a trophy, perhaps a German cup, something like that, to leave his legacy in the club. I think, like, he would be the kind of player who would want to do that for them, for the fans. And also because he hasn't really got much of a chance to play in front of the uh, the famous Dortmund faithful as well. And a lot of his time there it has been behind closed doors, so I think you would probably want to see the uh, signal at Duna Park at its, at its full glory a few more times before, before moving on,
0: I suspect. <laughs> Okay, We're about to play three players, one team. So I'm going to give three players that have played in the Premier League era and Luis is going to have to guess which club uh, links all three players and we'll reveal the answers at the end of the podcast. So, number one, Graham Dorans, Zoltan Gera and Jeff Horsfield. Okay. Uh, number two, Thomas Sorensen, Luke Young, Martin Larson. Number three, David Dunn, Frank Quedru and Joe Hart. Number four, Henrik Pedersen, Ducey Jaskalainen, and Fabrice Mwamba. And then finally, number five, John O'Shea, Niall Quinn, and Kieran Richardson. There are your five to be getting on with. So should we look at this, the Guardian article?
1: Yes, um, so just briefly introduce it. Um, so essentially, the headline here is, is that Andrea Agnelli, who is um, the current chairman of the European Clubs Association and also um, Juventus president, is saying that uh, essentially an agreement on a new look Champions League format is quite close. So the general idea behind this format is there's been ongoing discussions for a while um, about, gee, how to improve the Champions League or in other terms, how to make more money and ensure the position of the, of the top clubs uh, in Europe is, is not kind of compromised. Um, some of this discussion has gone around the European Super League, but I think some of that has kind of been quashed to, to a certain degree. And a new idea here is um, essentially with the, uh, the reluctant cooperation of UEFA, they're planning to introduce a new sort of reshaped Champions League. Um, And the idea would be to have 36 teams. Um, So each club would pay 10 group matches a season. This would be something that's called a Swiss system. So apparently they would all be ranked in a single league table, but then they would play essentially, I believe, randomly drawn 10 matches against each other, these 36 teams. And then those rankings would then be tallied up at the end. Um, And then I believe lead to a knockout system afterwards. And so the general idea is to have more matches in the Champions League, more matches between the bigger sides as well. And I think the general split that they're looking for is to have one third of the season be Champions League and two thirds be a domestic league. And they've explicitly said that they want, for example, competitions such as the Premier League, to have fewer fixtures to help accommodate this. And so that would naturally lead to, to these leagues kind of shrinking in size perhaps the elimination of other tournaments, uh, like, say, the League Cup. And in general, just just a shrinking of the domestic scene for the benefit of of European competition. I think the general idea would be that it would be introduced into 2024, uh, along with a few other reforms. I think the most eye-catching is um, potentially changing the transfer system. So Champions League clubs will no longer be able to buy or sell to or from each other, but just from lower ranking clubs, clubs outside the Champions League. Which I'm not quite sure, to be honest, even though Agnelli explained it a little bit, what the, what the logic is behind that, behind that move. Uh, it's interesting to get your thoughts on it as well, Tom.
0: Yeah, like, I think it's what you said there, like it just does seem as a bit more of a of a lad's club, doesn't it? Like the richest clubs get richer. And there's got to be a bit of irony there that the Premier League is going to lose out to, you know, they're going to lose out on money because of the top clubs around Europe when the Premier League started as a bit of a two fingers up to the rest of the football league. So that's quite interesting. But I I don't think it's something you can really look forward to. I think this seems to be. Agnelli's sort of uh, idea in opposition to the European Super League. Like, I think from what I read was he's not really up for that, but I'm not sure how different this is going to be from the uh, European Super League. Uh, I, I, I just see it as like, yeah, the richest club's getting richer, like more unnecessary games when we've already got a lot of games, <laughs> especially during the COVID period. You know, We feel like there's been a lot of games that just weren't necessary. Um, and the other thing we've got this season or next season coming, haven't we got the UEFA Conference League coming as well? So yeah, that, that'll be it'll be very interesting. I, I guess European football will look very different in the next sort of five ten years. Uh, we've sort of got used to these group stages now, to uh, teams playing each other twice. When the group stages came about in the mid nineties, it must have just been like this is crazy, you know, to go from a knockout a straight knockout competition to groups. And you'll never see a team like Stau Bucharest winning the tournament ever again because of the group system, really. Um, and it's a bit sad. Like I think it'd be more interesting if it went back to straight knockout, you know, like, but obviously that will never happen because it's less revenue. <laughs> but <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I agree completely. I think um it's just a further sign of the direction that the game is moving in, unfortunately. I think it's increased commercialization, obviously the financial interests involved. Have to understand it that it's a product. Um, and if you extend the product and enlarge the product, it becomes more attractive. If you've got the bigger teams, the real stars, um, the ones who bring in the big TV audiences from across the world. So probably I mean you're talking about perhaps 10 to 20 clubs at most on the continent who really do that. Um, those are the ones that are valuable for the sponsors uh, for all the interests involved. Unfortunately those, those clubs are going to get prioritized over anything else over any kind of you say broader competition. there have been some rhetoric about sort of bringing in clubs from for example Eastern Europe or from smaller leagues. I think that was a general idea behind the European uh, conference league but that seems more like lip service and they'll, we're going to give you the, the third tier competition uh, in this system and then you know we'll leave the uh, the plush uh, TV contracts and the, grand venues for um for this this project yeah it just seems like a bit of a shame there's also a little bit at the end I thought interesting um that he was saying that football's got to think of ways to attract younger viewers and he was talking about a subscription for the last 15 minutes of the match which just seemed like does he even like football or does he understand football yeah
0: that's that's so true (laughs) like I read that bit and he he talks about a major, doesn't he? A golf major, and he's like, "Oh well, most yeah. people, most people only want to watch like the last few holes of the last day." And it's like, uh, "It's just how can this bloke be in this position? Uh, he clearly has no, no, you know, without really saying it, he clearly has no interest, does he, in any of these games? Like he may be like the chairman of Juventus and the chairman of the European Clubs Association, but you know, not to go all your dar, but he's not a real sort of <laughs> foot, football man, is he? Like he, he's not." I don't know, it Just it's horrible that these people are almost taking the game away from us.
1: Yeah, I think he... Uh, I think the club and, and himself very linked to uh, generally to fiat, uh, to, to the car industry, etc. I suspect that's probably sort of his real passion in life is likely to be that as opposed to um, the football. It seems like it's just more carry-on the family legacy of actually investing in the region. What um, did you say? It just doesn't, doesn't feel like he gets the nature of football, which is, I mean, it's not that long a match. I mean, it's ninety minutes as opposed to a golf tournament, which likely lasts a few days. So, I, I mean, that analogy in itself just seems to show a great deal of, I mean, surely not ignorance, because he must have watched quite a few matches in his time, but more lack of care for the, for the actual fan-going audience and for the, the stadium-going audience as well. Because, I mean, here he's explicitly talking about TV, which is what they care about. And not giving any regard to those who actually go to the stadium, we can we count. We're obviously going to watch 19 minutes and they're enthralled throughout by their team. Um, but instead of thinking of people who might switch it on for five or 10 minutes to, to catch a score or see a goal. Yeah, again, it, it's not kind of one of those things where you got to be a Luddite about it, but at the same time, it does feel like the sport is moving into a, a sad commercialization, um, which is yeah, a shame to see.
0: I think it's interesting what you said there about he is purely focused on TV and viewing and stuff like this, because we're gonna it's going to be a real big shock once fans are allowed back into grounds across Europe. Like I th- almost think the broadcasters and people like that will be absolutely buzzing because they've now had the Premier League games. Now, granted, they tried to get us to pay fifteen quid to watch Burnley <laughs> versus West Brom originally. Like, granted, that's what their original scheme was. They're now they've now got all the Premier League games on the TV. And is that going to stay, like, when, when crowds can go back? Like, uh, the whole thing of having a blackout between three and five so that uh, people can go and see their local team or whatever, like, will that, will that come back? Or are we just destined to, to people just watching teams from miles away on TV now and not really going? I don't know. It's a, it's a wider mm-hmm. thing, isn't it? But it'll be interesting to see what happens.
1: Yeah, and I think you see that more and more with the scheduling of matches as well. I mean, I think we can safely say that long gone the days of the majority of certainly top level matches taking place at three o'clock on a Saturday. It just doesn't seem to happen anymore. I'm obviously exacerbated by COVID, but I think a lot, an ongoing trend that matches are getting moved to Fridays or to Mondays. Uh, to sort of primetime TV slots, times where they weren't showing football before. That general expansion yeah as you say it's all revolving around these these colossal tv contracts which are changing the nature of the game and that's not to say that necessarily interferes with for example when you talk about efl for championship league one league two um, these things can coexist to a great extent and i think what you see with a lot of people is i myself kind of like to do that as well if you go to perhaps a non-league match or a lower league match you can still watch a football on TV, on other occasions, and you perhaps enjoy both as almost different products at this stage. There's almost that much of a separation between them that you can say kind of like a glitzy game on Sky Sports uh, on a Sunday is, is quite different to going to support your local team uh, on a Saturday. I think there is that increased divide between that kind of experience, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. The fans are essentially going to say, Okay, we can we can kind of just enjoy both things and perhaps see Premier League football, Champions League football. It's a little bit more of a spectacle, some way removed from the actual sport of football in a sense.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, you, it probably will be possible to to view both, won't it? And um, this isn't anything new. Like, this divide has been growing and growing for years and years, and and it will just continue to grow. But I. I think when you talk about European super leagues or this revamp of the Champions League, the clubs just they just seem more and more cold and sterile, and they're just so far away from the average person who just wants to watch a game of football. So maybe maybe it will lead to more people sort of downsizing almost, and and like you say, going to see their local team or or something like that. Because I think it is hard for a lot of people to relate to to footballers on massive wages and players that you can't really afford to go and see when you could just pay you know 10 quid and have a pint and watch delet's Hamlet.
1: exactly um, and you know we've done that a couple of times definitely, definitely a fun experience um, but yeah i think that kind of thing i mean for example there's always this sort of an interesting contrast that i like to draw between perhaps the theater or, or even the opera or something like that or the ballet Uh, well, these are considered to be sort of really perhaps sort of snooty, snobbish things um, for the upper classes. Then you go and you actually see oh, I can probably get a ticket for 20 quid in central London to go see uh, a great play or or an opera, etc. And then you see, you check, oh, can I I get a ticket to go watch West Ham say uh, on that weekend? And if you can get one at all and you're not having to go through, you know, for many clubs, you perhaps I have to go through a ticket tout or get a resale or, you know, especially for the larger clubs, that's, that's often the case. Even if you can, you can get one straight away, then perhaps it's talking 50, 60 quid for a regular home match. Um, we're not talking sort of huge spectacles here. We're talking I don't know, West Ham, Burnley, uh, no offense to either side. Then you, you see kind of the forcing out there of, of actually of working class people, of a general atmosphere in the game, and also hollowing out of atmospheres as well that you see in the UK uh, in a lot of sporting events. And I think that's linked as well to the changes which has happened since the late 80s in particular, encouraged by Thatcherism, encouraged by the spectre of hooliganism, which you could point at and say, this is the worst thing in the game. We have to do anything we can to get rid of this. And then combine that with the influx of money through the game, in particular the Sky contract and the creation of the Premier League, you see it more and more development towards a really sort of I guess you would say sanitized version of the game where you've got these these stadiums full of fans who often I mean and no offense obviously to international fans who are entitled to come and watch their team but perhaps will only come over for once or twice a season um, you see a lot of local fans forced out of the game you see a lot of working class fans in particular forced out the game uh, young people often drive perhaps a passionate crowd you see in, for example, standing areas in places like Germany. Um, even places like Spain still retain that element of working-class support, quite cheap tickets for many of the top sides. And You just didn't seem to see that anymore in the UK. You have the odd initiative in England uh, with, with clubs like perhaps Little and giving out a few tickets to, to local fans uh, for free or of rate, discount rates, but then it's few and far between. It seems like the game has just moved into that direction of a commercial product which is a shame
0: yeah do you think like in terms of this country are we really miles sort of behind a lot of the rest of europe in terms of like ticket prices you know like food prices at grounds like all the all the costs of a match day because you hear about obviously germany and you you know more about spain but you hear about germany and uh, how cheap season tickets are for the for say by munich like you can have a drink in your seat it just—it seems that we are getting absolutely fleeced, and in another very English way, fans are just happy to accept it and take it, aren't they?
1: Unfortunately, yeah, I think that's completely the case, and I think a lot of it was the demonization of football fans, you said with with hooliganism, etc. I mean, it's very notable that rugby fans are uh, allowed to drink inside of the uh, inside of the pitch, top level matches and not get into it too much, but I'm sure we all know that rugby fans are capable of just as much drunken violence as any football fan. And notably it seems to be kind of all right for England fans to go over to, to other countries and sort of cause mayhem and piss everyone off. But then when it comes to like say particular kind of fans of northern working class teams are often put in that kind of position where they're seen as oh, enemies of social order. Uh, they're going to cause trouble. We don't really want their kind um, in the stadium. We don't want to have anything to do with them. And then that creates that atmosphere where they're priced out, they're forced out, and no one's really standing up on their behalf um, and no one's campaigning for them. And you're not really seeing any serious initiatives to try to, to get people back into the stadiums. And it's combined with ownership as well, because I mean, obviously you give the example of Germany, you've got fan ownership, uh, they have the rule for at least 50% of the club has to be owned at least by some kind of support or initiative or, or trust or share. And you see that more and more in the lower leagues in England, which I think is encouraging, but certainly at the top level. I mean, there's very little fan ownership at all. There's very little of a fan stake in the club. And that means there's no no one within the actual organisation pushing for the rights of ordinary supporters. There's no one saying we would need, need to make sure the season tickets aren't raised again this year. There's no one saying, oh, maybe a a pint shouldn't cost six quid in the concourse. So there's no one really there. And I think it's a general trend, which is seen, I think, across industry in the UK and across different sectors of the economy. Um, But certainly you see it in sports. You see it in football, where it's just lack of ownership, whether it's from workers, or in this case, supporters. And, you know, many places on the continent have done a better job with that. I think the one place that is uh, a bit of a warning sign is Italy. We've consistently seen declining attendances, stadiums are falling apart. Again, this is somewhere where you don't see much of a stake from fans in the game, in part they were driven out through this violence of the ultras and through the ensuing police crackdown, which has meant that you need all kinds of identification, et cetera, to get into matches, they're banning people uh, from supporters clubs and then you know, that could be the way that English football goes to a certain degree, but perhaps not by force um, of kind of will of batons on the streets or people being banned from matches, but more just simple financial kind of cold hard facts that you can't afford to go to the match anymore.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, it's done in a very different way, but for the very same reason, isn't it? To keep, keep a certain kind of person away from, from football grounds. Um, without sounding too whimsical, is it, is it possible to make a link between the way that football clubs treat their fans to how the Labour Party treats its members?
1: Yes, I definitely think it's probably a general principle that in, in certainly British English, I guess you would say, politics uh, and society is, you know, you have this group of people who are clearly loyal and attached to something which is, you know, at least they thought was thought of as their own. And probably at the start was an institution that came from them, that came from the people that served their needs as well. Um, So we might say, you know, the start of the Labour Party, you might say the start of all these, the foundation of all these working class clubs in particular. I mean, you know, that the earliest clubs started were in general from the North, from the Midlands, from industrial areas, that serve the community. And, you know, weren't just, you know, as you say, not, not to sound too modern or anything, but they weren't just football clubs. They... It really did embody a community and a spirit. As you saw in, in the huge attendances, for example, in post-war matches, perhaps when you could say British society was at some sense it's most united and there seems to be a real purpose and energy. And you have people coming in, 120,000 people coming in. Most clubs, I think, maximum attendances or sort of highest attendances recorded were generally in, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I think for example, for the clubs like Wolves, who are experiencing a great period then, Portsmouth, etc. And so you see a kind of mass participation, which is something that has been reduced sort of more and more as you get into the 70s and 80s. You get increased commercialization, You get the atomization of society, more individualism. There's less of that collective purpose. And then these institutions become something that are completely alien and they're not beholden to anyone. So as you say, the Labour Party, Labour Party is not doesn't feel like it's beholden to anyone anymore. It's like, I don't need you. We have this structure, this institution. And what's important is about our personal power in that institution. So whether you're a club chairman or you're a Labour Party staffer at the top of the organisation, you're looking to advance your own power and you're also looking to make wealth both for yourself and for the institution. And in neither sense does that correlate or chime with the actual needs of Labour Party members, or in this case, of supporters, because they have no representation. So they don't really care if you turn up or not. It's just that the Labour Party doesn't care if you turn up for a meeting or not. So the club doesn't really care if you you don't turn up to the stadium. A a Premier League club does not care if you don't turn up to the stadium. they try to do fan boycotts, for example, Newcastle, Liverpool even, quite frankly, the club doesn't care because most of its revenue doesn't come from that. So it's not beholden to a local fan paying for a season ticket. Obviously, I think a certain percentage and perhaps I think 8 to 10% for the bigger clubs comes from that. But the vast majority comes from TV revenue and commercial deals. And that aligns its interests with the interests of the TV companies and the sponsors, as opposed to you know, fans who might come into the stadium, whether they're local or international. So it really just generates that conflict of interest. And there's no way to reconcile those two until you see fan ownership of clubs. Is really the only way, actual ownership, to ensure that those interests intertwine as opposed to colliding.
0: You just feel so powerless, don't you? You just feel absolutely bereft of like having the ability to change anything uh with with your football team and with a lot of other things but yeah i'm, I'm glad we managed to get on to uh bashing thatcher and individualism I, only episode <laughs> two but yeah
1: let the joyous news be the wicked old witch at last
0: shall we go through the answers uh let's yeah okay so moment everyone's been waiting for so number one we heard Graham Dorans, Zoltan Gera, and Jeff Horsfield. What did you have, Luis?
1: Says so West Brom.
0: That is West Brom. Number two, Thomas Sorensen, Luke Young, and Martin Larsen.
1: Says so uh, noticing a trend here. it's uh, Aston Villa.
0: Yeah, it is Aston Villa, and I only <laughs> know I only noticed this after I'd written them all out, and I was like, oh, this is this is crap. David Dunn, Frank Woodroo, and Joe Hart.
1: That's Birmingham.
0: Yeah. Uh, number four. <laughs> <laughs> Henrik Pedersen Juicy Ascalin, and Fabrice Maramba
1: uh, Bolton
0: yeah Bolton and then finally number five Jenna Shea Nell Quinn and Kieran Richardson Sunderland yes mate full house five out of five Ooh. well done thank you for thank you for coming on Luis had a really good time again that was good fun
1: yeah thanks Tom it was uh, really good fun
0: and thanks everybody who listens and we'll hopefully be back in a couple of weeks.